When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Ho, 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 hello, and welcome back to a bonus episode of Bar Humbug. This today is something a little bit different from anything else we've done this year. This is an interview with monster expert, Dr. Emily Zarka. She's the host of PBS's monster documentary series, Monstrum, going into the mythology of all our favourite monsters. And she's here today to talk about the dark side of Christmas. Now, I'm not saying that Dr. Zarka teaches students at Arizona State by day and then goes out Buffy style at night to take down the undead, but I'm not not saying that either. So this is basically a stocking filler for those of you interested in Christmas ghouls and ghasts. I'll be honest, I recorded it back in September and I thought there was bound to be some kind of Krampus movie or monster movie that I could attach it to. And then there kind of wasn't this year because, you know, Christmas Bloody Christmas is a bit more robotic. And unless you count the brief appearance of the Krampus in the Santa Clauses, we're basically left with this standing alone. Luckily, I think it can do that because I find this really fascinating. Dr. Zarka talks me through not just the Krampus, but other Christmas beasties, including my new favourite and surely Hollywood's next Christmas action star, the terrifying Yule Cat. Now, for all this and more, you can check out PBS's Monstrum or have a listen to Dr. Zarka now. Enjoy. I'm going to start with the question that I feel like everyone is probably thinking, how do you become a monster expert? This sounds like an amazing job. It is an amazing job. I'm very fortunate. So becoming a monster expert for me involved a lot of luck and a lot of stubbornness. So long story short, I've been a fan of horror since I was a little girl. Never thought it was something that I could actually make into a career until I had some amazing professors who showed me the way in my undergraduate career. And I made the connection between horror and Gothic literature and the undead, and it took off from there. And when I was in my graduate program, the more and more I was researching my actual expertise, which is the undead and Gothic literature, I was forced to go further and further back into history and folklore to try to trace the origins and came to realize what I think a lot of us who are fans of the genre already know. Horror's been around forever. Monsters have been part of our human condition since we could tell stories. 
And so I decided I was going to commit to helping tell those stories as a monster expert. That's amazing. And and you're so right. I mean, it is all interconnected. And so many of these, you know, what we think of, I think sometimes as modern, quote unquote, uh, monsters from the movies, like do have roots like hundreds or maybe thousands of years beforehand, right? Absolutely. Especially the big name ones that we think of. Um, dragons come to mind because they've been really popular recently. Dragons, griffins, um, again, undead of all kinds. So vampires, mummies, zombies, <laughs> all of that stuff has been around for forever. And again, I think that that just speaks to the importance of monsters is that they might fade into obscurity or there might be trends with them, but they never fully disappear. Um, it's very rare for a monster to kind of fade by the wayside completely, especially with fans um, of fantasy and horror who, you know, pull them out of the depths even and stuff like Dungeons and Dragons might bring back, you know, a more yeah. obscure creature. And I, for one, love that. I think that the best monsters are the ones that are able to adapt uh, to our current times. Yeah, that I mean, that's fascinating. The sort of trends in monsters, because I feel like, as a you know, I'm a I'm a horror fan, but I'm not a diehard horror fan. I'm you know, I sort of I'm across all genres, and I feel like, for example, the Krampus, which is obviously what we're we're focusing on today, has kind of come up in popularity over the last fifteen maybe years. Like I don't feel like I'd heard a lot about it before that, and suddenly it feels like it's everywhere. I would agree with that. So I think, again, Krampus is a fantastic example because Krampus has been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years, which is fascinating. But you're right that we as a global society are only recently becoming aware of Krampus because of things like the Internet and because of the emigration and immigration of different people from the Alpine regions who have those mm -hmm. stories as part of their history as they spread around the globe and started, you know, being proud about their own stories, we get more Krampus runs. So there is a tourism element that's connected to the popularity of Krampus in general. But what I think is really fascinating about Krampus's popularity, if we look back in pop culture, we actually largely have snail mail to thank uh, for the popularity of the Krampus, in my opinion. In the 19th century, uh, Austria actually became the first country to start delivering postcards. And you gotta love when consumerism and technology combine. And they decided to start making these bright red postcards with these crazy illustrations of the Krampus monster on them. And that's actually the first time we see the monster labeled as Krampus, very obviously, as like a singular creature. 19th century. Wow. Yep. Okay. So the postcard delivery, I think, started around late 1860s. And then the Krampus postcards um, a couple decades later. But mm -hmm. the great thing about any kind of print culture, of course, is now we have this record. We have this tangible thing that could be shared amongst families in different parts of the world, but also friends. And they became kind of a collectible item. And if you have the chance, anyone listening, please look up the Victorian Krampus postcards because some of them are hilarious with Krampus, you know, with babies, but also very scantily clad women. And it's just such a weird, fascinating part of pop culture. And I love it so much. <laughs> so this is not quite as simple as, you know, just a simple reverse on Santa. It's not like Santa brings you toys and Krampus brings you coal. No, that's how it became eventually. Right. Um, I think the biggest misconception about Krampus that has circulated as a myth in the 21st century is that it is connected to some kind of 
ancient pagan fertility rite. There's actually no evidence that that's the case. Right. Um, originally, the concept of Krampus didn't even have that name. And the Krampus figure uh, itself is known by many names even today. But before we really had a static image or a stereotype of Krampus, it was largely just a wintertime boogeyman that parents and adults used to threaten children to behave uh, during the cold winter months when they're inside more, where food might be scarce, they might be a little more uncomfortable because it's cold. And over time, you got to love good folklore, you got to love good monsters. People started dressing up in these, you know, scary figures. Um, so that's where we actually start seeing with the costumes, obviously, the sort of myth becomes more tangible and that's right. where we got the standardized features with the horns the long tongue um, and of course there's a really interesting artistic tradition that emerges from that as well so we have all these crazy looking uh yuletide monsters and no one's exactly actually sure when krampus became directly connected to saint nicholas we don't have that pinpoint moment in history there is evidence that around the late 16th, early 17th century, Jesuit theater started placing a Krampus figure on stage with St. Nicholas. Oh, okay. In theatrical performances. Right. And even before that, I think that's a very likely sort of explanation is associating this thing that looked kind of devilish or demonic with a largely Christian tradition. Um, but the other thing to keep in mind, too, is although there's no direct pagan connection, a lot of scholars will argue that Krampus was inspired by Perchton, which are mischievous alpine spirits, again, closer to the original uh, boogeyman type figure of Krampus. Right. And that that comes from the tradition of Frau Perchta, who's actually a female Yuletide deity who is Ooh. associated with the winter months and uh -huh. who would give you gifts and blessings if you were a generous person and gave her offerings. And if you didn't, she would slit your stomach open and like take out your intestines and fill them up with trash instead. So oh, we have whoa. this violent tradition uh, <laughs> that Krampus comes from as well. And we still see that partially. Um, even today in the touristy versions of Krampus and Krampus Law for the Krampus Run, one of the most distinguishing characteristics of Krampus is his switch. Um, I read some stuff and talked to some people where it's like, you can't have a Krampus without the switch. There needs to be that threat of violence or beating, like you mentioned. So, yeah, it goes beyond more just like Krampus is going to give you a little hit with a stick if you're a bad boy or girl around Christmas. We have to consider so many more aspects to the figure. Very, very much more. You're saying Alpine. So we're talking sort of what southern Germany, northern uh, Austria, that kind of region? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Hungary. So like anything that the Alps sort of touched there's at least some variation of this creature. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And and the idea of like in these in these kind of plays that you're talking about, sort of Jes Jesuit plays, is it sort of, you know, good versus evil kind of morality tale kind of story? Usually. I haven't gotten, unfortunately, because of my own language barriers, um, to read detailed uh, scripts. But from, yes, what I can gather, of course, St. Nicholas being both a saint and a Christian icon, of course, is associated with overcoming evil, doing good deeds. And we that's one of the best things about monsters is you have to have the bad guy to make the good guy look good. So, of course, again, if you're already sort of trained in the Christian tradition to recognize people who are hairy or have like long tongues or serpentine features or horns like a goat or a ram and associate that with the devil, when you see an image of that, 
on mm. stage, even without having them say anything, you're yeah. going to assume that they're evil or bad. And they sort of doubled down on that. And of course, this is something that didn't just happen in that region of Europe. And we see a lot, time and time again, of different religions when they enter into a particular country that was unfamiliar with that spiritual practice. It doesn't make sense a lot of the time to completely eliminate all those older spiritual practices and folk traditions because people aren't going to like their entire histories being erased. So there's ways that places like the Catholic Church have sort of adopted a lot of those traditions like the Perchton, which became Krampus and sort of painted it with an additional veneer of elements of their own religion that they can borrow from. And this happens with yeah. trolls. This happens with dragon. I mean, this happens with so many different things. Well, yeah. One of the things I was going to ask you about, because um, I was reading up on, on your work and Yule Cat also came up as well as Krampus. Tell us about Yule yes. Cat. I love the Yule Cat just because, again, just love monsters in general, but the Yule <laughs> Cat we can think of if we really wanted to as a slightly less, I don't want to say aggressive because it does kill people, um, but a different variation of this Perchton or Krampus or dark Yule Tide figure that's endemic to Iceland. Okay. So the Yule Cat is only from Icelandic tradition, which is really interesting to consider, uh, but Iceland briefly actually banned dogs. And even oh. today, you have to have a special license. So there were a lot more cats just roaming around. That was part of Icelandic tradition. And the Yule cat comes down in the wintertime around Christmas and will peer in the windows of people's homes. And if you have not yet received new clothing, it will drag you out uh, and, you know, attack you, probably eat you. And this is a threat to both children and adults, which is something that Krampus also falls into as well. And how I read the Yule Cat tradition with the clothing, which is really interesting, mm. is to promote finishing the clothing trade. I mean, clothing was a, and wool production was a huge part of Iceland and still is of their economy, both internally and externally. So it was a way to get people to actually get their work done essentially on time. And that serves okay. a really practical purpose, too, not just monetary, but people need warm clothes to survive. That's a very good point. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and the other really interesting thing I think about the Yule Cat in that spinning and weaving tradition is that families would do those activities or communities around the fire. So right. it became part of storytelling, part of education. It was a way for intergenerational uh, communication to occur. So again, what happens when we get people together? They tell spooky stories. So yeah. I just like to imagine that, you know, everyone's gathered around this fire doing their work and Whoever was the original storyteller was like, hey, I'm going to take something we're familiar with, cats and this Yuletime monster tradition, and I'm going to make a cool story and it's going to start spreading. And that's how we get iconic monsters. Yeah. So we don't have, a, a, to the best of my knowledge, a Yule cat film yet, which I think is a, is a massive oversight. Hollywood, if you're listening, come on. I agree. I can't think of one. There might be an independent film out there somewhere, and I really hope that there is. But yes, I mean, the internet loves cats. People love Christmas horror <laughs> movies, or at least I do. So yes, give me a Yule Cat movie. Yeah. And it's it's big, isn't it? The cat is it, it's a very big cat. Oh, it's huge. Yeah. yeah. So I should have mentioned that. It's not like this is a normal cat roaming around. It's basically an even bigger version of a Norwegian forest cat. So wow. think like kaiju Godzilla size, but a cat that likes to eat you if you don't make your clothes. 
I'm sorry, kaiju cat monster at Christmas time. <laughs> Hollywood, I don't know what you're doing with your lives, but you have, you've missed a trick. <laughs> Call us, please. We've got to make this happen. Yes. Hello, I'm Martin. I'm Sam. And every week we get together on our podcast Song by Song to discuss the music of Tom Waits. Uh, Waits is a writer, musician and performer. Uh, You might know him from his four decades of songs like uh, What's He Building In There, Downtown Train, Martha, Rain Dogs. Or you might have seen him in films like Dracula, uh, The Fisher King, uh, The Mm. Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Or, if you made it that far, Licorice Pizza. We're joined every week by guests from various backgrounds and disciplines, and together we take a close listen to his work, analysing the topics and tones he uses in his music, and honestly engaging with one of the most interesting voices of his generation. Listen to our latest season or dive into our back catalogue by visiting songbysongpodcast.com or search for Song by Song in your podcatcher of choice. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Tell me about like a a Krampus on screen like have you had favorite iterations that you've seen are there movies that you particularly love yes as I mentioned I think that Christmas horror in general is untapped I'm a big fan of it I think any kind of holiday-based horror is super fun um and Black Christmas which is a famous uh slasher film was arguably the first one right and that mm-hmm. is about yeah. Christmas so love but in terms of Krampus I think I have two favorites my first okay. would be the 2015 Krampus movie, like the big sort of Hollywood yeah. one, I actually think is really well done. I think it plays with the tradition um, and gets some of the folkloric elements right of Krampus, uh, even that sort of intergenerational conflict. But it also weaves in scary versions of Christmas icons like demonic gingerbread men and nutcrackers and even like the angel at the top of the tree. And I think that the movie is super self-aware and a little tongue in cheek. (laughs) Uh, And ultimately I would read it as how hard it can be about to like be around your family during the holidays, (laughs) which Which is is something that a lot of people can relate to, I think. Exactly. So I think that Krampus is really cool, although it's a blended maybe a little too much with Santa Claus and St. Nick. Again, I can appreciate it for what Mm. it is. And then there is... This might be a controversial opinion for some. Bring it. But the Christmas horror, I would consider horror classic, Rare Exports. Yes. Amazing. Uh, which is a Finnish film. Yes. Yeah. And I don't want to give too much away because I feel like that one would be a little more spoilery. But I do think it's an interesting interpretation, shall we say, of blurring the lines between Santa Claus and the Krampus uh, figure. So if you haven't watched yeah. it, everyone needs to. It's a great it's- movie. It's a superb, superb film. And it has, you know, it has a lot of Christmas warmth, weirdly, in it, as well as these terrifying monsters. The little boy at the centre of the movie mm-hmm. is wonderful. He's great. But it also has terrifying Christmas, you know, killers. Which, again, I think is how it should be. I mean, which is kind of terrible to say, but I think that's, for me, what makes a really strong monster movie or horror movie, or frankly, any kind of horror story, is they're all about in my mind the monster is rarely ever the true evil or the big bad right it's always about how the humans interact with one another and respond to that threat that i think is where the real 
scares actually come from. Yeah. I'll be honest, as, uh, almost entirely as a result of rare exports, I had it in my head that Krampus was uh, a, a Scandinavian phenomenon. But Again, no. yeah, these traditions do travel, so I'm not that surprised um, by that. And it does make more sense that it would have come that film from Scandinavia than, you know, California, just because it makes more sense that it would have sort of spread laterally that way. But yeah, the other, I guess the thing we should warn people about too with rare exports, there's a lot of nudity. Mm. Surprising amounts, Surprising yeah, for amounts. a Christmas movie. <laughs> but hey, you know, you got to teach the kids sometimes. So. <laughs> <laughs> you really do. Um, I, I was going to ask generally about Christmas horror movies mm-hmm. uh, a little bit and Christmas horror monsters. Um, I have to ask, first of all, because it feels related and I don't know if you've seen it or not. I don't know if you're a Supernatural fan. Because yes. they had a Christmas episode with a, a sort of elder god figure okay. who preys on on people every Christmas time. And uh, it's one of the funniest twists on Santa, certainly I've ever seen. So I just wanted to ask you about if you remembered that, if you've seen I that. I honestly don't remember that one because there's been so oh, many no. and I know I should have like a back there's catalog. There's 15 seasons, man. Yeah, it's a lot to keep track of. <laughs> but it's not surprising. Again, if we look globally, there are a lot of wintertime deities and even going back to the Krampus tradition, Frau Perchta, again, is associated with the winter months and ironically with bringing up the Yule Cat with like the spinning and weaving. So we do have a little bit of integration of these Yuletide um, deities, which again makes sense even before the Christian veil was put onto it, because it's a very different time of the year. I mean, people, Mm. of course, used to live their lives more by seasons. So it's dark, it's cold, and it's a time to celebrate sort of the wares of the year and have a little bit of rest. So we have monsters across the globe to celebrate that. (laughs) Thank goodness, I guess. (laughs) Thank goodness for it. Again, I love it. (laughs) I think there should be more of it, quite frankly. Give me more. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is untapped. I agree. So so what do you have horror films that you put on every Christmas? Because I I have essentially a Christmas playlist of like 20 classics that I always watch. And then I watch obviously all the new ones for this podcast. But uh, what do you go to? Rare Exports, obviously, um, is one of them. Black Christmas, the original, mm-hmm. is definitely on the list for me. And I think that the Trick or Treat movie actually works kind of at any time of year. So I'll usually watch that somewhere between Halloween and Christmas to bridge uh, yes. the gap. But what are some <laughs> of your best horror Christmas recommendations? Well, actually, I have a Halloween Christmas bridge as well, which is I Love. think the Nightmare Before Christmas comes yep. into season, as it were, on yes. November 1st and remains in season until December 24th. Which is great. So I, I will watch that somewhere in there. Gremlins yep. is a big one for me. I have to watch Gremlins every year. Rare Exports actually as well. And then I've, you know, I've been kind of experimenting that with uh, with other Christmas horrors, I mm-hmm. guess, and sort of adding them in. I mean, to an extent, I guess one of the most uh, famous Christmas stories, A Christmas Carol, yeah. is kind of a horror by any rational... You yeah, know. I mean, there's a ghost very prominently at the center, so you could definitely <laughs> argue that. I think there's also an argument to be made that Home Alone could be a horror movie. <laughs> yeah. In a lot if of it ways. Was, if, it was, if it was played literally like one degree to either side, I feel like it would yes. be for sure. Which again, I think is about this blurring of the lines, even for children, right? Like that's a kid's movie. There's some pretty messed up torture stuff that happens. Um, so it's like introducing kids to horror light in a way, which yeah, 
Funny enough, this is this is a conversation uh, I as we as we record this. This is a conversation I had with some of my colleagues yesterday about introductory horror for kids. Where do you start them? Mm. You know, and and to be honest, there's quite a lot of very scary kids movies. So you can yes. start them with something like Return to Oz, even Pinocchio. Some of the yes, early Disney Pinocchio was terrifying. I was scared of Pinocchio because of the giant whale as a kid. And like being eaten by a whale. But I think my response says when you introduce kids to horror, we already do all the time. Like you mentioned, even before you get into those kids movies, like fairy tales have really, really dark origins. Like the original Little Mermaid, people are, you know, freaking out about the new live action, which I think is going to be fantastic. But the original Little Mermaid, she turns into sea foam at the end. The prince doesn't choose her. Like, that's terrible. (laughs) We're not telling that story exactly. But if we look hard enough, I think there's horror in pretty much every story that we're telling children. And I think that that's part of our, again, human tradition and very practical to teach them about the various dangers of the world. Yeah, it's it it does seem to be like it's universal, as you say, it's worldwide. There are horror stories everywhere. There are horror stories going back through history as far as we as far as we have stories recorded. It does seem to be something that we need to do as a species is is to confront the darkness and to confront the most unimaginable imaginable things. You know, I would agree with that. And again, that's my general monster philosophy: is that every horror story, every monster has some grain of truth behind it. And it's not that we can completely write off all monsters as being explained by some kind of natural phenomenon or real life creature or fossil because human imagination does come into play. But monsters both police the boundaries of our society and help educate us about where those boundaries exist. And I think that, yeah, as long as we're going to have good versus evil, danger versus safety, we're going to have monsters. Absolutely. Okay, I'm going to move away from Christmas for just a second because I want to know about your favorite monsters, especially in movies. Let's keep it focused on movies, but not Christmas. What are you? What are your go-to's? So my go-to, a hundred percent, because I'm an, my favorite monster type of all time is the undead. Any kind of reanimated corpse, huge fan. Um, so, <laughs> and my first introduction was vampires and zombies. So right. I would definitely have to say I actually really like zombies because the okay. range, I think, can be so broad, both in terms of what creates the zombie and how the zombie is interpreted. Are you going to go more of like the Haitian voodoo tradition where they look like they could be alive and just maybe under some kind of trance or under drug influence? And then, of course, you have what I call like the hive zombie or the pandemic zombie, which might be spitting out black blood and running really fast and body parts are kind of decaying and falling off and the shambling Romero zombie tradition. I just really appreciate all variations of the zombie. Oh, so you're you're not a slow zombie purist. You're like any kind of zombie. Any kind of zombie, 100%. Yep. People ask me that all the time, like slow versus fast. And I'm like, appreciate them for what they are. They're different. And I think they're both threatening in different ways. So again, I call the fast ones the hive ones, because I think that as what we've seen, particularly in the last 20 years, is we you know move from like a handful of zombies to a couple hundred, to a couple thousand, to now literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions. And I think that speaks to fears we have about like overpopulation right now and the idea that we're all becoming brainwashed and part of this like hive mind. Um, so the fast is scary in different ways, but the slow is great. I actually think the Walking Dead television series, but the comic more. Um, so did the slow moving zombie really well? Because they're just always there 
And even because you can outrun them, that doesn't mean that they're not still a threat. And I think that is interesting and maybe something that like a horror movie it follows plays into that in a little bit of a in the same way of this constant presence that you you're not sure exactly where it is, but you know it's around and that threat is maybe a little less overt or sudden, but is still there. And I think we can identify with that in a lot of yeah. ways. It, it's the fear of death made flesh, yeah. isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, the fear of what's phenomenal. after death. Is there anything, right? I think the zombie confronts that really directly because in some ways it kind of argues that there's not, right? Or at least for our soul, that our corpses can just shamble around, which is scary to think about. Very scary. <laughs> Okay, so final question, because I, yes. I I did promise not to keep it too long, but what has no one done yet that you'd like to see? Is, is Yule Cat the answer or are there Ooh. other kind of variations on maybe the Krampus or, or Christmas kind of horror that Hollywood is ignoring? I mean, we are giving them ideas for free here, yeah, let's are. be honest, but you know, we want to see this. This is terrible. I don't know why this popped in my head. I would love to see like a dark buddy comedy with like some of these like winter monsters, right? Like maybe the Yule Cat and Krampus and the Yule Lads or something are all creating havoc somewhere. I think that <laughs> would be really fun. But frankly, my answer too is that I'm not the best person to ask. I think that we need to be looking to um, marginalized voices to be telling those stories. And that's where we're going to find the best content. And I've always believed that the best horror comes from people who haven't had a chance to speak their stories. So I think we just need to be more open-minded to monsters of all kinds. <laughs> Very wise indeed. And I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I saw a really interesting Northern Irish a vampire movie uh, last year, you know, which I, even as a Northern Irish person, I would never have come across before. But, you know, it's it's finding stories in, in parts of the world that have maybe been overlooked and bringing them into the light, which is really fun. I agree. Awesome. Well, listen, Dr. Emily Zarka, thank you so much for talking to us. Cheers. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of Bar Humbug. Please join us next time for more Christmas movies madness. In the meantime, I've been your host, Helen O'Hara. This podcast is edited by Ben Williams and produced by Kobe Omanaka for Stripped Media. And if you've enjoyed the pod, please do rate us with five shiny Christmas stars wherever you listen to your podcasts. But whatever you do, happy holidays! heard a stripped media production. 